Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. We live in a world of fees. Airlines, hotels, food delivery, and especially car dealers all charge excessive last-minute fees. When you want something badly enough, it feels like your only choice is to pay up. But what if you had a choice to take a stand instead? At Carvana, we believe in treating you better. With zero hidden fees, you can drive off without feeling ripped off. That's what it means to live fearlessly With Carvana... Napa know-how. At Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers, get a $25 prepaid Visa card when you get any Napa automotive battery. It's the best deal for some of the best batteries from some of the best car people around. But we might be a little partial. Anywho, pick up any Napa automotive battery and save $25. Do it yourself or have it done for you. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers. While supplies last, offer ends 831.20. First question, you know, making a film like this, something that is obviously so, so grueling. What was it like for you when you actually got to sit back and watch a complete cut of it for the very first time? Well, I mean, the first time we saw it, it was actually a rough cut. Mm-hmm. There weren't a lot of uh, the soundtrack put over the top of it. Um, we watched it together, Sam showed us, and I found it really emotional. And, uh, you know, even though I know the ins and outs of everything, we was there doing it. You know, I was still scared, I was still surprised, I was still sad. And uh, it actually surprised me, you know, I didn't realise how immersive it would be, like the whole one continuous take. I was really wrapped up in it. How about for you, George? Yeah, to be honest, it made me really clear on who I love most in my life is. Because in that that way, as as Dean said, we know everything about, you know, how it was made and, and have our own experience of it. But 
I think the film's about, you know, when people get stretched their limits, what you then come back to. And it, was, I, it made me think of the people in my life that, that I go back to. So I had to, you know, make a couple of phone calls after. You know, this is obviously something that is very deeply personal to Sam Mendes. So what was it like, the first, the first conversations you had, like the first audition process? How much did you even know about the way this movie was going to be filmed when you first tried out for it? Do you know what? I don't think we both knew that much about it, other than that Sam Mendes was directing it. I don't even think I knew that he read it. No. no. And uh, we both had three auditions. Um, the first audition, it was with a casting director. And then my first interpretation of Blake at first was uh, with an Irish accent. I thought it'd be an Irish man for some weird <laughs> reason. Um, but we didn't, we didn't get the opportunity to read the full script. They only sent us... Uh, they only sent me a scene, and it's the scene where Blake tells Schofield the funny story about Wilco getting his ear bitten off by the rat. And uh, just, just by reading that scene, I sort of got a good understanding of that he was a really warm character. And then, uh, but the first, the first conversation was with Sam, and that was the second audition. And uh, he, he talked about his granddad a lot, and uh, his granddad fought in the First World War. And, um, but he, he didn't really talk about it much until he was, I think he said, he, until he was in his 70s. And uh, he, he told his grandkids, and that was, Sam was one of them. And, uh, and he, he talked about how we delivered a message one day. And, um, and that sort of inspired Sam to, to make a film set in the First World War. How about for you, Wade? What was the uh, process for you when you finally realized the way he was going to make this movie. <laughs> yeah, it was it was the the second audition, and so the first one, similarly to Dean, I just had two sides and not a whole not a whole script. So two scenes for the film, which is one the little argument that they have after they've just escaped from the the German bunker, and the other one was with the baby um, and the woman in the cellar. And uh, then the second meeting was with Sam. And he, he, I remember the first thing he asked me: he just went, what's the most satisfying experience you've had in a job? Like what? What? What have you enjoyed with a director? And he and he, it was this really really insightful question. I'd never been asked that before. And it started up this conversation. And he said, "Oh, there's no right answer, but anyhow, how we're going to do this one is I can tell you a bit of the story, and it's all going to be on one shot." <laughs> I was like, what? And he said, "So you know, if you guys were to do this, and the process of making this is, you'll be rehearsing for." At that time, he said four to five months beforehand, and we wound up being closer to six months to basically choreograph the, the whole film because, you know, usually for him as a director, you've got the edit to craft the pace and the rhythm of everything, where with this, the emotional rhythm, like a play, had to be sussed out beforehand because it... Um, it dictates the length of the set. You know, the scenes have to be the length of the set and the set needs to be the length of the scene. And, and all of that emotional rhythm has a real physicality to it because the camera never cuts and we never stop moving. Well, what was it like the first time you guys met? How far into this process of auditioning or whatever did you finally meet? You know, you got the gig. And what was the first conversation that the two of you had about these guys and about the way you were going to make the film? Did you look at each other and go... Dude, I don't know, man. <laughs> well, the first time we met was actually on the last audition, and that was like a chemistry read with me and George and Sam. And uh, I'd never met George before. We never knew each other. And uh, the first thing George said to me, or one of the first things was, do you like history? And I was like, yeah, it's all right. I was like, that's quite good. Um, and we just spent every single day with each other. You know, even now, the film's finished, and we're doing, you know, Q&As and, and press and stuff, and it's, you know, we've... we've 
really bonded, and I got a friend for life from it. So, um, oh, you know, and I couldn't have done this without George as well, by the way, because George is, as you've all seen, such an amazing actor. And he, uh, you know, he gives 100% with everything he does, every single time. And it was a privilege to work with George. Very nice. How about for you with, uh, with him? <laughs> I was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, t- I tell you, like, Dean's, Dean's such an amazing actor. I mean, and again, as, you, as, as you've seen, and, and just, just a, a wonderful bloke. And, and so we've, we've had the best time making this together. And as Dean said, like, it's not, not just saying, well, I, I couldn't have done this without Dean. We couldn't have done it without each other. And, and for me, one of the, the best things about working with Dean is that obviously with, with this process, it's so technical. And it, you've kind of got to have, you know, get immersed in the scene, but also you've got to have one foot outside of it because you've got to be aware of the third character, which is the camera and the operator. And with that sort of outside eye on the scene, it was so wonderful because Dean is such an instinctive and natural actor just to exist in the scene with him and sort of trust that the friendship we had up to the point when we came to film... And, and the understanding that we had of each other from rehearsing for months and months and months that you could just kind of let go. So it was, um, it was a real privilege. So what kind of homework did you do? The, the prep, the research, but also because of, because of the kind of movie it is, because of the, the long takes, because of how growing it is, you know, the training that you had to do to be able to carry all that weight of the uniform and the gun and, and all that stuff. Yeah, well, in, in them six months of rehearsals, we were training every day really we uh we had a military advisor called paul biddis who actually served in the british military and uh we trained with the weapons and and the rifles and wearing the equipment that the soldiers wore all the webbing that's what they called it it's basically like a load of backpacks and uh it's very heavy and very (laughs) uncomfortable and do you know what i know it sounds stupid but i was actually really surprised on how restricting their gear was like literally i couldn't even hardly put my hands together when i put my arms you know, you'd think that they'd sort of have made it so they could at least hold a gun properly, and I couldn't. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, we every single day was wearing the webbing, wearing the rifles, and you know, just making it feel natural to to be in that in that kit. Your your training. Yeah, the, the the training. There was, I mean, there was a bit of historical research we did. So we went with the production to France um, and went to the war the war graves, the sites, which was really. I mean, just like really insightful and um, profound anyhow to see those places to go. We went to Tietval where the Battle of the Somme was fought. Um, then Dean and I made our own trip to Belgium as well, which was a good bonding experience anyway, because I'd, I'd Googled, you know, like double checked what times the museums open and everything, but I hadn't considered what months they weren't open. So we drove from Essex to Belgium. And then got there and the museum was shut. <laughs> so, but we saw loads of other stuff. That was just this, this particular museum that we missed. But we, the, the training, we, um, I guess so much of the story, you know, it, it happened so presently that for us, it, the biggest thing was to understand who those men were up to the point that you meet them. And then to know those men well enough so you could just exist in the happening of the story. And so there's, there's so much literature on the, um, on the First World War. And a big part of it was just understanding what the day-to-day was. You know, like how, you know, what their, what their schedule would have been. There's, um, you know, I, didn't, I always thought of the trenches, even when learning it at school, was just the front line. And obviously when you think about the war, you think of constant battle, you think of constant fighting, where actually the, the geography of their land was so, 
important to learn that there's, you know, there's two reserve trenches before you get to the first, and it's essentially four days in each one, and then you have 14, 12 days behind the line. So it's a sort of two-week-on, two-week-off rhythm. And then also that some of the time you're just waiting. And I think that's mentally for the men what, what would have been so difficult is that, frankly, there's so little activity and you, frank, you can't see anything. You're just in a trench, so you don't have a horizon, you don't have any news. And as Sam said, it's this point where suddenly they're fighting with machines and you can kill someone a thousand yards away, but you can't hear someone 30 yards away because the trenches are all dog-legged. So that sort of weird mental claustrophobia that could go on for months and then all of a sudden there's a barrage and just that sort of tightrope that those men would have been walking and 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 what that does to you um was was you know was really important for us to know and and, and sorry there's there's so much as well in terms of like the war poets it's such a surreal time that there's so much amazing art that came out of it so like there's actually a lot of stuff from the day-to-day diary entries or voice recordings but then also like there's a bunch of painters and and all the um all the war poets have this I was. I used to get. I got really into that. And some of the, some of the poems are almost like they reminded me of like Hendrix lyrics or something. It's so psychedelic because it's so strange that it's this weird thing where the world's just been completely ripped apart and turned upside down. So it's just a wealth of taking on as much as we could and then letting it all go to then just exist in in the moment that was the scene. So once you get to the moment and the scene, the thing that really struck me when I watched this movie for the first time is, and this is a word that I, I don't often, I don't think I've ever used when it comes to a film about war, about combat, is choreography. Because, because of the continuous nature of this movie, because of the, the takes, the long takes that you had to do, everyone had to hit their mark with not just hitting their marks physically, but the dialogue. And like if you're doing a scene with your your fellow soldiers, your platoon, someone in the background sneezes, you're like, oh my God, got to do it all. I mean, what, was, what were the challenges there? Do you know what? I mean, I mean, firstly, we'd never had an experience like this before making a film. You know, I think the longest take we did was, uh, was like nine, eight, nine minutes, and that was Blake Steph saying. Um, but yeah, you know, like, listen, things, things go wrong all the time, whether it was a prop, whether it was, you know, a mishap on saying your line wrong. But you just have to carry on, you know, and the worst thing to do is cock it up, and that's one worry that you did have as an actor, but you just carry on and, 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 and that's it. But, yeah. I, th- I think as well, like, as much as the choreography was specific, I think also the what was the beauty of the process is that the choreography it wasn't handed to us on day one in terms of like these are the steps and when we took six months to learn those that that choreography was built over five months in terms of what we end what we kind of the choreography that we had to stick to was developed for months and months and months in terms of our, our day one was last november in an empty field with Sam, with our scripts, just walking the lines and just walking through the scenes and doing that a number of times, getting the pacing right, feeling like how fast you'd be walking, how long the silence should be. And then once we got to a place that felt good, go, right then, and put a stake in the ground and go, okay, that's the corner. And then we'd carry on to do the next bit and then go, okay, right, so you've got men coming this way, we'll pick up, the, the ground's a bit this. And we literally just were in an empty field with flags mapping out the trench. And then, uh, and then they'd dig that partially and we'd come back, test it again. 
And, and it's, it's this amazing mutual dance where we had to, everything was made to measure, but then also the consideration of Roger and his team are working out how they wanted to shoot it. But all the moves, the, the restriction of the physicality of the space, you had to work out how you could naturally put sort of shapes into the set that would, that at the right point, could open up the, the space so that the camera could move around. So say you've, we've practiced it and we've gone, right, this length of trench needs to be X amount of time. We need to go from behind to front on this certain line. So we'll plot someone to come in to move your body that way that can shift the... The, the, you know, the relationship that we're walking and then go, okay, well, we need to go from behind to front, but we don't have room. Okay, Dennis, you know, Dennis Gassner, the production designer, go, why don't we put in a shell hole there so that blows open the trench wide enough so in that moment the camera can come round. But we need to know emotionally that moment needs to be the right point. So it's just, with, that would take weeks of going, okay, no, that was... And also because it's Sam's a perfectionist and a master, if he wouldn't he wouldn't kind of go, oh, that's okay. It would have been better if it was six foot on. We'd, we'd come back and they would have dug it again. You know, they would, we would shorten trenches, long, um, uh, lengthen trenches. They built over a mile of trenches for, wow. for the set. You know, and everything you see is, um, is, me- you know, is made to measure. And, and hopefully the best thing is, the best thing is that you don't notice it. But that was, yeah, that was just months and months and months of every member of the crew being there in a way that, for all of us, we'd never been, been before. You know, I was, I was here last night watching the movie uh, for, the, for my third time, and I, I kind of came in thinking, like, okay, I'm going to sit down, I'm going I'm to look, and I'm going to try and pick out, like, where, where the cuts were. But I just, I forgot, because I just got into the there film. There are no cuts, what are you on about? <laughs> I just got into it, you know, and it, it just took over, and I was like, walked down, like, ah. But... What do you do? How, how do you, you're, you're, you're shooting a film that takes place over a two-hour period. What happens when the weather doesn't cooperate? Yeah, well, I mean, Roger Deakins, the cinematographer, as you just said, used natural light. So, you know, for instance, the first ever day that we actually shot, we all turned up, ready to go, a bit nervous. Or turn up, best day ever. Beautiful. Sun was out, beaming, lovely. Couldn't shoot. And we didn't shoot the whole day. But, um, you know, we used that opportunity to rehearse. And, and that's, that's one thing that, you know, we did on this film. If we weren't filming, we was rehearsing. If we wasn't rehearsing, you know, we was filming. We'd never really sit down, would we? You know, we would always be on our feet, being Blake and Schofield, trying to deliver a message every day. And, um, yeah, you know, we, we could only shoot when the sun was behind the cloud. And, uh, so you'd see everybody just standing up, looking at the sky, just trying to... <laughs> And then, and then some of the time you'd like, if it was a nice day, but there was a couple of clouds, you'd be right. Everyone would be going, okay, okay, there's a big one coming, there's a big one coming. And they're going, <laughs> yeah, I think it's big enough. Okay, get in position and everyone be there. And they go, and it just, they put the board on. And as soon as it kind of went a bit dark, they go, and action, we get through the take. Just about makes it the end. And then there's someone come out going, all right, cool. We've got one. Oh, that, that's pretty exciting, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, keep sharing your toes. Uh, you know, some of the scenes... Uh, 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 that I really, really stuck out to me is that you talk about the scene of the bunker with the explosion and like the the uh, purity of the film, especially in that scene in particular. Like I had to get out of there. Like the the claustrophobia was palpable. So what was like this to film that scene to be in that closed environment? You know, you're not outside. You know, it's really confined. Do you know what? I mean, this is hats off to uh, Dennis Gassner, the production designer who brought the sets to life. I remember the first time 
we saw that, that bunker set. All the lights was off. It was pitch black. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And it was so, so eerie. And, and with every set, you know, you, you know, you genuinely was in the trenches. You know, you genuinely was in no man's land. And all the conditions that we were filming in were so realistic. You know, nothing was really made easier. It was just how it would have been. Um, but that scene in particular, that was quite difficult to shoot because, you know, the scene's lit by Blake and Schofield's torches. So not only was we, you know, doing our job and acting and stuff, we also had to light the scene and light where the camera would see. Um, so that was a that was a tough uh, that was a tough scene, and also picking George up, you know, it was quite yeah, hard. That was tough for you too. Well, I, I think I kind of like get credited because like Schofield's in a bad way. It was much tougher for Dean because I'm just like I'm buried in actual rocks, and yeah. <laughs> Dean's got to hoik me out, and as he says, with all the gear on, and and again, there's like. The beauty of the, and it's, it's tricky because you don't want to give away too many of the secrets, but it's a mixture of like hyper-technicality and then also, it's, it was kind of like doing a, like a school play where you've got all these cheeky, really old school things, like kind of effects as the wires. So, you know, Dean was yanked back on a wire, but then would have to release it, on, you know, himself. And there's, there's all these moments where, you know, some, some shots to get the camera arm in would have to, Take the, we literally took the roof off of one of the sets in the mid-scene when the camera couldn't see it. It was, it was a polystyrene roof. And so you'd be doing the scene and you just hear, <laughs> and the roof would come off and then the camera would just be able to get in where it needed to and stick it back on again and we'd carry on. And then, so it's, it was like a play, always. Yeah, it felt like, I mean, it, 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 you have to rehearse it like a play again because of just like hitting your marks in the choreography. Uh, but the other, th- the other scene that kind of stuck out to me is, uh, you know, uh, Blake's death. So, yeah. yeah, how was it filming that? That was a weird one because uh, it was a scene, you know, even though we did these six months rehearsals, that was one of the scenes that we didn't really rehearse. We did it once in a rehearsal room. and uh, did once in yeah, rehearsal? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and it was, it was uh, in our rehearsal room, we had a load of cardboard boxes and them cardboard boxes was used to uh, you know, be the set, basically. So Sam could literally say no you know, move that wall a little bit out that way, you know, bring in a wall this way so we could move the set, basically, before they brought it to life. Um, but I remember the first time, like, actually shooting that scene, and that was really, like, the first time actually doing it. You know, it was nine minutes long, and I couldn't stop crying when they called cut. And that, as an actor, doing these long takes, you really do just get lost in it. Everything's so realistic, as I said before, like, the conditions, the set. The, you know the outfits, the costumes. You know, you genuinely was there, and it, it weren't pretend; it felt real. And uh, you know, that's the thing I love about this film as well. It's it's not really an educational film about a war. It's, you don't have to know nothing about the First World War. It's just a very human story, and I think that's why you know people like it. You know, they can imagine themselves there. You're seen running from the enemy, jumping into the river. Going over the waterfall. Good God. Talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, um, that, was that, that, that was actually, well, for Roger, first at the beginning of that scene, getting out of the town, that was kind of Roger's trickiest, one of Roger's trickiest moments is from going from night to dawn. And so we had this 20-minute window where the light was correct. And we, so we prepared to shoot it for two days, and we knew that we had 20 minutes going into sunset, 20 minutes at sunrise, and then 
the day before. And we managed to get it in the first 20 minutes, but it just meant that we did that last run again and again. It was like sprinting full pace. Okay, get back. Sprinting full pace. And, we, and uh, yeah, so we, I mean, it is, it is what it is. We, we, we went, there wasn't too much acting required in the river because you were just trying to stay up, you know. Um, but, it, it, but that said, I, again, without trying to kind of ruining the magic of how, how it, was, it was made, we were, we were up in a river in Darlington and up at a whitewater rafting facility where you can control the flow of the water. So where, you can, where they do kayak competitions, you know, you, you put put things, you put blocks in the water to manipulate the flow of the rapids and they, and they were plot a course. And we were up there in February. I mean, this is the thing, it was the best team effort because to, to work out that shot, we, were, we, we shot from April to July, but I was up there with the special effects team and the stunt team and the, some of the AD teams in February, literally just test running, how can we shoot you in the water? Like, with the, they had it with the, the thing, it was this brilliant two days where I was in this wetsuit going down the rapids and then they had a kayak with the cameras on the back and they're going, oh, the camera's a bit high and then the special effects boys go, right, drill a hole in the kayak and they'd sink the camera and go, yeah, now it's a bit low. And then, but now, why don't you try and holding on to a rope so we can keep the distance but then I'm a different distance because I'm in the water and they're above the water and so they go, right, we'll fashion a massive Velcro pole and attach you to that. And it, it was like this kind of it was, like, it was like being, again, it was just like making a school play or something because everyone's just there trying to figure it out together, like how can we manage it? Um, but, you know, the, the, the doing of it, I think that scene is, the, the physicality kind of connects you to the emotions as well because you're so at the mercy of the elements. I mean, he is at that point in the story and even in the doing of it, that you're kind of, he's lost control at that point. And I think it's beautiful how Christy and Sam have, they they don't they don't tell you how to feel they just they just encapsulate it in a in an emotion you know in in a, in a situa a physical situation but when you're doing a, a long scene like that your your emotion is going to be genuine because you're in the moment you're not interrupted you're not shattering the illusion yeah. and i and certainly you know with a film like this you know i i didn't want to shatter the illusion because i even after three times i was like oh damn i forgot to do that thing you know where you're looking whatever but like what was the Without shattering anything, what scene was the hardest to film? I don't know. For many different, for, I mean, I think that I think Blake's death was because it's so. I mean, Dean gave the most incredible performance, but it, it's so emotional. And one, it's hard because it's, it's hard to go through those emotions. It's hard also to, you know, to like generate that with all the technicality of it and also in credit to Charlie who captured that scene our camera operator that the camera never stops moving in this flow but it's so accurate you know it literally never stops moving and if his timing's out by a second it's kind of you feel that the flow's not correct and that was the nature of the whole film every shot we, we completed it every shot most most times you know we, we would do 45 takes or something and 40 takes you get from A to B but it was just that the rhythm wasn't quite right. Like the whole thing was like a dance. And it was that you'd get from A to B, but you weren't completely in sync. You know, that that bit came a little bit too soon or a little bit. And you, so it was, it was funny that you knew when you got a good one. You sort of, you could feel like in the flow of it. And, and it was really exciting because you kind of like would look around to each other and then you'd look over in the distance because usually we'd travelled such a long way. See so like Roger and Sam come out and go, oh, they're, they're talking, they're talking. And then you'd get the sort of, and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a bit everyone had scored a like, you know, scored a penalty or something. It was high fiving and just that 
that rush every day, no matter how difficult or tough the shot was, every day was such a celebration because you, you, you go, Fuck, we've got five minutes of the film. We've got five minutes of the final film just now. Like it, was, and it was so exciting. How about for you? Would you say that Blake, Blake's death was the toughest for you? Or? I mean, definitely Blake's death was, yeah. was probably the hardest. Um, you know, dying is very <laughs> difficult to do. Um, and that as well, like, you know, Blake deteriorates slowly, but he has different, you know, there's different points at first. He's aware that he's being stabbed and then suddenly he's confused and then he, he looks down like it's the first time and he's like, what's happened to me? can't remember and then he becomes delirious and that's quite hard to play but um, I also had a blood rig as well like in my in my backpack so at the start of the scene I think it was like three litres worth of blood or something and I was really it was really hard to walk and it was really heavy but you know thankfully the more I died the lighter I got so it weren't too bad um, but you know what was really hard it was the no man's land sequence with Blake and Schofield and, and the thing as well like you know you've got to remember is it's not just us walking in that condition you've got a whole camera crew got the camera guys, you've got the, uh, the sound guy that was slipping everywhere trying to catch up and it was just you know a bunch of weirdos in, in No Man's Land filming a film, slipping everywhere but um, yeah and then the bit with the crater as well when Blake and Schofield jump down and they go and then the camera lowers down to the lake and it goes like that and then they go back up the crater that was difficult and I'd see like before we started doing the takes everybody wetting down the mud and I'd be thinking like in my mind like please don't wet it down anymore because it's so hard so so slippy. It's like walking on ice rather than mud. But um, you never could complain because what we were going through, you know, is a slice of cake compared to what the real men went through. You know, we were safe. We got to go home at night. We got to have a shower. You know, they didn't. What was the last scene that you filmed? Uh, the very last scene was um, uh, was getting out of, of uh, acoustic. It was pretty much chronological, um, the whole shoot, but just given the location and... Dennis Gassner built this, and the whole art department built this incredible set for Acoust. And that was like the final piece, that kind of night work. So, yeah, the final piece was, was jumping off the bridge to get to the river, which was kind of, yeah, it was funny. It, that, and that was also the shortest day of the year, the shortest night of the year. Oh, um, it was the summer solstice. So that, that was the last one. So when Sam says, that's a wrap, what you guys, did you high-five each other? Like, yeah, we did it, you know, like... Well, I was dead. <laughs> that was a weird thing, wasn't it? Because, you know, we'd done, we'd done six months prep together and then filmed chronologically. It was only the acoustic bit where we changed the chronology a touch. Um, but, you know, so we'd done six months prep together, a month and a half of filming, and then all of a sudden Dean went. And it was like a death because we'd done every day together, every hour, every day, like every morning, every night, we'd be staying in the same place. And then within a day, Dean went. It wasn't like a peter out. It just, we, le- we left. And that was weird for me as well, because as Joel said, six months rehearsals every day. Being Blake, you know, the, the two characters are very determined to, you know, deliver the message, try and save my brother every single day, that level of determination. And then suddenly it stops. And then I didn't save my brother. And then I'm sitting at home on my bed, wondering how they're getting on filming. <laughs> And I genuinely believe that I died. It was really weird. And it wasn't until the first time I saw it, you know, it put me at ease a little bit. And then I know this sounds stupid, but it reminded me that we was making a film. Because you just genuinely get lost in it, you know, and I believed every minute of it. I also, just an observation that there's a change in Schofield's determination. 
after Blake dies. There's, a, there's definitely a, a desperation to it that, that I'm going to do this or die trying, you know, and there's, uh, it, it just changes the, the, the tone of the film a little bit because he's flying solo now. He doesn't have his buddy with him. Um, but Sam Mendes, you know, for, for him to make a film like this, like what makes him a great actor's director? Um, I think well, Sam's just like Sam's so masterful, and the, one of the most wonderful things about Sam is he is he, he properly listens to everyone, and because he properly listens, whether he goes, he he's very clear on what he wants, but he's still open to people's suggestions, and that makes it a collaboration. Whether you know whether he goes with the offering that you've made or not, you can tell that he's genuinely listened, and. As a director as a whole, I think the, the amazing thing about Sam is, 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 is a man, he's very kind, he's very sensitive, he's very empathetic, but he also has this incredible architectural, like, mathematical understanding of storytelling and how, how and when you give information and images and happenings and how you create an emotional reaction. And his understanding of like the architecture of story and, and the rhythm of story is like nothing I've ever seen before. And makes great movies. You know, yeah. you, what's your take on Sam as a director, an actor's director? Yeah, I mean, do, do you know what was really good was that this is his first script that he's written uh, with a lady called Christy. And uh, he had such a crystal clear vision of the story he was trying to, set, trying to tell. You know, and that's, as an actor, very comforting. And he would just say one thing to you, you know, whether it's a word or a sentence, and it would just make you think completely different about the scene and he uh he just gives such great notes and you know i remember you know he gave me like a little talking to one time it was the scene with uh you know schofield's buried under the rubble and blake has to save him and we did it over and over and over again he literally just pulled me aside and he was like remember your mate could be dead he's dead and he just, he just says, you know, such great things. And it thinks, you know, sometimes you get a bit of a rhythm of it where you do it again and again and again. You just forget the simplest of things, but he's, he gives great notes. So, ladies and gentlemen, now that the movie is out, and this is absolutely a movie with a capital M that you've got to see on a big, fat, huge screen. So, please, how do you spread the word these days, right? You go on social media. So, go on Facebook. Go on Instagram, go on Twitter. You guys tweet. I don't, actually. I'm an old man. You should. <laughs> and that, you, if you're using MySpace, that's totally cool, too. Uh, Dean well, Charles Chapman, George McKay, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, today's for, having nice Thanks for having us. Today. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Napa know-how. Get all the quality parts you need at your locally owned Napa. Because right now, when you order from Napa Online, you can pick up curbside at your local store in just 30 minutes. Or get your order delivered direct to your door with free one-day shipping and over 160,000 quality parts when you spend $35 or more. Quality parts delivered quickly and safely. That's Napa Know-How. Napa Know-How. At participating stores, standard ground shipping and exclusions apply. It's that little Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. 
State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.